Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Now this week's uh, Metro newspaper, which is found freely on buses and other modes of transport in Manchester, featured an interview with the legendary rock musician Elvis Costello. Metro asked Costello about some of his career choices, which have sometimes been surprising. And they included uh, one decision that surprised a lot of people. In 1997, Costello, who is usually quite cool, appeared in the Spice Girls film, Spice World. Now, Spice World was the last film you would expect Elvis Costello to agree to be in. Why on earth did he do it? And he told Metro that he'd been at an awards ceremony where the Spice Girls won an award, but everybody booed them. And he felt so annoyed by this that he thought, I'll show you, you boring old losers. I've changed one of the words in that sentence. I'll show you. Uh, And he then said something that jumped off the page when I read it. There was a righteousness to my decision to appear in the film. There was a righteousness to that decision. It should come up on the screen as a quote. A righteousness. Now, what does he mean? Righteous means morally right or justifiable. Prabhav was filled with righteous anger when he thought about human trafficking a few moments ago. And his anger was righteous. It is morally right. It is justifiable. Now, in the Bible, God's righteousness is that, but it's also something else. It's not just a description of his character. God's righteousness is his activity of putting the world to rights. It is his activity of creating well-being. It is his activity of saving, of salvation. There's a, a definition on the wall for you. God's righteousness is his saving Activity. Here's a, a quote from Isaiah the prophet, chapter 45, verse 8. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. You see, the creator God, who loves his creation, hates to see it distorted and broken and wicked and fallen. And he wants to restore it to its original goodness. That is his righteousness, his saving activity. Now, I know it's a silly example, but you know, in its own way, Elvis Costello's decision to appear in an embarrassing film was an activity to put something right. He wanted to help save the Spice Girls' credibility, but they were beyond saving. (laughs) So does this righteousness of God make any difference to you and me on Monday morning? It makes all the difference in the world if we understand it. Because we are all counting on something to save us. We're all counting on something to save us. So I want to ask you today, what are you counting on to save you? Some of you have been Christians for a while, and you're inside, a little hand is going up going, I know the right answer. (laughs) It's Jesus. I'm counting on Jesus to save me. Well, that is the right answer. But we need to go deeper because it's possible to believe the right things about Jesus and yet have something else functioning as your righteousness. It's possible to believe all the right things and yet have something else functioning as your righteousness in your heart. You see, you can believe in Jesus, but a belief is a bit like an outer wrapper or an outer shell. 
around a core belief in something else. Now, the letter to the Romans in the New Testament is all about righteousness. It's full of this word. In fact, the theme sentence of the letter, which is from chapter 1, says this. It tells you what the book's all about. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, good news, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the one who through faith is righteous shall live. The one who through faith is righteous shall live. Now there you have the whole whole letter um, spread out before you. You've got God using his power to save salvation. You've got God's saving activity, his righteousness. It's coming to you through the good news, the gospel. You believe it, but in faith you approach God and you are rescued and forgiven. The one who through faith is righteous shall live. Now a great preacher was once preparing to speak on this very verse. And as he studied it, he had a moment of inspiration. It was almost as if a voice spoke to him there in his study. And this is what he heard it say. The one who through faith is righteous shall live. But the one who through preaching is righteous shall die every Sunday. Now that's me told. It's possible to try and make yourself righteous through preaching and you die every Sunday. But let's just take that logic and apply it to our own situations. The one who through faith is righteous shall live. But the one who through parenthood is righteous shall despair every morning. The one who through parenthood is righteous shall despair every morning. Now in the West, in the Western cultures for the last generation, we've built a child-centered culture. And now we're reaping the consequences. I don't think this is so true in Asian or African cultures, from what I can tell. But in the West, we have grown up believing that, in some sense, having a child and a baby and and raising children and revolving everything around them can somehow save you. You know, having a baby will be this ultimate life experience that makes you into someone. You become a parent. And the heart says, oh, if only I could be a parent and have my own baby to care for, then at last my life would matter. And you see how you can try and count on a child to save you? But let me tell you, children can't do it. However, they can drive you to despair. I want to tell you a couple of secrets. Firstly, babies take away your sleep. And secondly, then they take away your social life. Now, this is not well known. You may have spent 20 or 30 years never hearing this, that babies take away your sleep and then they take away your social life, but that's what they do. They don't do what they're told. They get sick. Sometimes they seem to be getting sick all the time. So if you hope that having a child will open a door to this great new life, you will despair every morning. And your life will become like a zombie film, only in reality. Two people looking ashen and half dead, stumbling around in a kitchen, And sort of bumping into each other and saying things like, did you put a bottle in the fridge for him last night? No, I forgot. You know, Our life has become a zombie film. We try to make ourselves righteous through it, and it will despair. What about this? The one who through faith is righteous shall live, but the one who through male affection is righteous will forever be disappointed. The one who through male affection is righteous. Again, in our culture, the vision of a romantic relationship 
is constantly set before us in such a powerful way that our hearts are shaped by it. The idea that love and romance will just sweep me up in this ultimate experience and that will make my life worthwhile. But women who put their trust in male affection will forever be disappointed. Even if you meet Mr. Right, he won't stay Mr. Right for long. Why is it that my wife always laughs really loudly when I say things like that? It's kind of the laugh of cynicism. <laughs> because both you and Mr. Right are sinners, which means your heart's tendency, both of you, is to make yourself the center of the universe and try and make everything else revolve around you. And when two people are trying to do that, watch out. Now, I am not a cosmologist, but my understanding is that there's only room for one sun in this solar system. Andrew, is that correct? He's not a cosmologist. He's going to give us 10 minutes of detailed information now. Better press pause. You know, the best kind of romance grows out of friendship and a shared love of Jesus Christ. You are both, then, planets orbiting the same sun. The worst kind of romance grows out of hormones. Marriage is a covenant of companionship in which you swear by everything you hold dear, we are going to make this work together. It's a great gift from God, but dear friends, don't count on it to save you. The one who through faith is righteous shall live, but the one who through parental approval is righteous will never be free and never really grow up. Are you living your life? Are you, are you trying to be saved by parental approval? The one who through faith is righteous shall live, and the one who through friends, friends is righteous shall forever be needy. Are you trying to be saved through your friendships? The one who through faith is righteous shall live, and the one who through social acceptability is righteous will always be insecure. What is your relationship like with Facebook? Is Facebook your friend or a master? The one who through faith is righteous shall live, and the one who through achievement is righteous will exhaust herself and break down. So let me ask you, how would you fill in the gap? How do you fill in the gap? What, what does your heart tend to lean on? Now I wanted to just to point out three things about these false saviors be it parental approval or friends or affection or children or social acceptability or achievement. Three things about these false saviors. One, they, they all promise peace and hope. If you follow me, you'll have a good life, peace and hope. They all stand on something precarious. You can't rest your weight on it. And they are all crushed when suffering comes. When suffering comes, they all desert you. They, they wilt like a flower in the noonday sun. But the gospel, the good news, points us to a better way. In fact, it is the only way to live. The one who through faith in Jesus is righteous shall live. And living is what we want. Hence this series that we're doing in the letter to the Romans called Newness of Life. New life. We are searching to learn how to walk in this new life that God promises us, as Paul the Apostle says in chapter 6. And here in chapter 5, make sure you've got your Bible there, chapter 5, he makes six fantastic, majestic, magnificent statements about the true Savior and the implications of believing the gospel. And I'm going to set these six things before you really quickly, maybe two minutes each, so stay with it. 
And then I want to ask how we as a church community can grow in peace and hope and stop putting our trust in false saviors. And then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Firstly, we have peace with God. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. The pursuit of peace is a universal dream, whether it's peace between countries or tribes or families. The musician Bono from the group U2 grew up during the Troubles in Northern Ireland and he wrote a song called Peace on Earth. This is what he sang. Where I grew up there weren't many trees. Where there was, we'd tear them down and use them on our enemies. They say that what you mock will surely overtake you and you become a monster so the monster will not break you. It's already gone too far. Who said that if you go in hard, you won't get hurt. Jesus, could you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Now, why don't we have peace on earth? The Bible's answer is it's because we are alienated from God. And from that baseline hostility to our creator comes every other enmity. We shake our fists at our maker and then we turn them on each other. But the gospel says... God didn't hold a fist out to you. He held an open hand of friendship and he made peace. Jesus did more than throw a drowning man a line. He himself came down to make peace. And through him, we now have peace with God. Two, we are standing in grace. Look at verse two. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, all those false saviors I was just talking about, they're all a precarious place on which to stand, aren't they? But the gospel gives us another foundation. It says we have gained access or we've been introduced into grace, and that's what we now stand on. Now, I've never met a member of the royal family, but those few people who have met the Queen of England receive an extensive briefing before beforehand on how to behave they need to know how to address her majesty they need to know how to bow as i understand it they shouldn't bow too low or or, or not at all they need to know how to speak i've never met the queen but as i understand it one is not supposed to turn one's back on her i mean that's pretty awkward isn't it trying to go out of the room backwards And even then, they only get to stand in the Queen's presence for a few minutes before they're turfed out again onto the streets outside Buckingham Palace. Now, that's a human queen who looks the same in her pyjamas as you and me. Maybe not exactly the same. It's a 90-year-old woman. What about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. The gospel says we can live in his palace. We stand in the sphere of grace. We stand on a foundation of gracious acceptance, not as subjects, but as sons and daughters. So our relationship with God into which Jesus Christ has brought us is not something precarious or something sporadic or something temporary. It is secure. It is uh, rock solid. We stand on it. Nothing can separate us from this love of God. We are standing in grace. Three, we rejoice in hope of God's 
glory. Look at, with me again at verse 2, second half. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I've changed the word to rejoice on there because I think the word boasting has the wrong kind of connotations. It is a fair translation. But if it is boasting, then it's the kind of boasting that a newly engaged uh, young woman makes about her engagement ring. You ever seen a, a, a newly engaged a bride-to-be with her ring sparkling on her finger? Now she may boast in it, but it's not a boastful kind of kind of boasting. It's a, a joyful boasting of possession of something very precious that's life-changing. So we rejoice or boast in the hope of God's glory. What kind of hope is this? See, you know that you and I, human beings, we're creatures of hope, hope-based creatures. We all live in hope of something. Hope drives us. And hope beckons us. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, the Proverbs say. Hope disappointed makes the heart sick. We need hope to flourish. Without hope, we perish. And the Bible offers us a glimpse of a hope that is, frankly, transcendent. It is the hope of the glory of God himself. Now, God's glory is its infinite majesty and beauty Literally, the word glory means weight. It means that God is the most weighty, significant person in the whole universe. He's the one who really matters, the one who really counts. And the promise of this good news is that one day we will see this glorious God face to face and we won't be consumed, as we should be. We will see him and we too will be made like him. We will be glorified. Not just we'll see him, but that we'll be changed when we see him, we'll finally be released from sin and sorrow and suffering and sickness. We'll live in a renewed creation and we will be glorified. It's a vision of happiness and a vision of splendor and beauty that a glorious sunset or a sunrise just begins to hint at. Glory awaits. We rejoice in hope of God's glory. For we also glory in our sufferings, verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Now, so far, the benefits of justifying faith have been pretty positive, haven't they? You know, uh, peace with God, standing in grace, Hope of glory, wonderful positive things. Here we have a, dark, a darker note introduced uh, into the piece. And, but like any great piece of art, whether it's a great symphony or a great painting, some dark and discordant elements are needed to achieve the full beauty of the piece. He says here that we glory in our sufferings. Now, how can that be true? If you've really suffered or you are really suffering at the moment, or you're in a situation that's long-term and it causes suffering to visit your heart when it wants to, then you may be thinking, I just don't know how that can be true, that I could glory in my suffering, whatever it may be. Now notice he doesn't say we glory because of our suffering. That would just be masochism, suffering for its own sake. But what he is saying is that in the midst of suffering, a Christian can have an entirely new perspective. It can have actually a unique 
perspective on suffering because we have a different take on suffering to the rest of the world. See, we have a suffering saviour. Our Lord himself, our king, suffered on our behalf. So we've seen that suffering leads to glory because the suffering of Jesus led him to the cross, which is the most glorious thing ever. We also know from this passage that suffering is the means to maturity. It's the way we get to be mature because he says suffering produces perseverance and it builds a kind of uh, uh, steadfast, faithful, enduring, persevering character in you that having an easy life wouldn't do. It builds character, the kind of tested character of a person who can stand maturely, not the flakiness of a raw recruit. And it says here that character produces hope. Mature character hopes all the more in God because it can see the reality of suffering and the reality of the God who saves us from it. Now those of us here, again, who've been brought up in Western cultures have been taught to believe that we should never suffer. We've, we've, we've been kind of led to believe that suffering is an imposition on us. Now, if you believe that you should never suffer, life is going to be a shock. It's going to be a shock to the system because life is full of suffering, even for people in the West, even for those of who have grown up with plenty, who've never really starved, who've never had to fight in a war, who've never had our property taken from us, who've never experienced pandemics. Even we will taste suffering in a fallen world, so we need to know how to face it. And he says here, we can glory in our sufferings. See, the question is not whether suffering is going to come. It will. It will come. The question is how I will face it. What resources will I call upon in my hour of need? Christian gospel says, glory in it. Glory in it. We know it leads somewhere. We know it's not meaningless. We know it will build our faith and character. We know it will lead us to a keener yearning for hope than an easy life would have. We know it will not last forever. It will mature us. So, how are you suffering right now? How are you suffering? And how are you counselling those who suffer? How are you counselling them? Are you counselling them that, oh, this is terrible, it should never happen to you? Are you counselling them by saying, oh, just grin and bear it and pretend it never happened? Or are you counselling them with this kind of counsel? Glory in it, because it produces character, perseverance, hope. Five, we shall be saved through Christ. Verse nine, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now in the good, the good news, the gospel, the verb to save is used in, with three tenses. The verb is used with three tenses. There's a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. In the past, it says, we were saved. We were saved from the penalty of our sins by Jesus' work on the cross it's done and dusted. It's finished. Seb prayed it earlier on. Jesus said it's finished. It's done. It's past. We were saved. 
But there's also a present tense. The present tense reality is that although I've been saved from the penalty of sins, I still have a struggle with the power of sin. So we are being saved right now through the power of God's Spirit as he makes us holy, progressively, day by day, hour by hour, year by year, growing in likeness to Jesus Christ. We are being saved. And in the future, there's a future tense use, which is this. We will be saved even from the presence of sin and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So in the past, we were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we're being saved from the power of sin. In the future, we will be saved even from the presence of sin. So Christian friend, are you saved? The answer is yes and no. Yes and no. But these verses give us a strong assurance. We will be saved through Christ. Look at the guarantees there. You know, while you were God's enemies, you were reconciled through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And there's a rock-solid guarantee. Jesus has paid the down deposit, the deposit, the down payment on your salvation through his death. And having paid that kind of price, God's going to deliver on the rest of the bargain. He will save you one day. And all of this adds up, sixthly, to a grand conclusion, we also rejoice in God. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God, we rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. If all five of those things are true, if you've come to believe those five things, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, And if the light of the Holy Spirit is being shed abroad in your heart at all, then you should rejoice. Rejoice in God. Listen to John Stott, great uh, Christian writer. It seems clear from this paragraph then that the major mark of justified believers is joy. The major mark of justified believers is joy, especially joy in God himself. We should be the most positive people in the world, he says. We should be the most positive people in the world. For a new community of Jesus Christ is characterized not by self-centered triumphalism, but by a God-centered worship, which our group has already led us in today, and Prabhav has led us in. Now, is Stott right? Should we be the most positive people in the world? When I read Romans chapter 5, I have to conclude that he's right. We really should be the most positive people in the world. That has to be a major part of what it means to walk in newness of life, is to take these things and apply them to ourselves. But the big question then is this. Are we, Grace Church, are we taking these things, believing them, and rejoicing in God? Or are you being dominated and discouraged and depressed by those false saviors. Right? I'm really speaking to you now as a friend. You have a choice as a Christian. I know some of you here are investigating. Great, you just listen in. You have a choice as a Christian in how you're going to walk. You're not a robot. God gives you freedom. You have a choice into what you're going to put your trust and how you're going to use your time and, and employ your mind and use your friendships and use your 
ability to, to speak counsel to somebody else. You have all these tools at your disposal uh, with which you can either become one of the most positive people in the world or you can half-heartedly follow a kind of false savior that gets you down. Which choice do you want to make? Because I think a lot of us are making the wrong choice. Now let me ask you, what is the one word that all of six of those statements have in common? We! We! It's actually a, a pronoun. He changes it at this point in the book. He starts talking about we, us, all of us, he's saying. Apostles, ordinary Christians, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, Africans, Asians, Europeans, Australians. We, all of us. We, this is the clue we get to how we can stop trusting in the false saviors, which always let us down. It's, this is how we can trust in the, in the true savior, which we need to do if we want to live. The one who through faith is righteous shall live. It is this. We, the only way to do that is to do it together. The only way to do it is to do it together. Some of you here are already half asleep this morning. What are you doing, guys? What are you doing? You've got to do this together or you will forever be in the shallows. We have peace with God. We are standing in grace. We rejoice in hope of glory. We also glory in our sufferings. We shall be saved. Now, you've got to take that and apply it into your heart and mind and not just do it on your own, but do it for each other. Now, if you're a business person or you go out to work, you're a doctor, a teacher, find fellowship somehow. If there are other Christians at work, pray with them, encourage them. Pray on your commute, read something, listen to a podcast. Bring these things to bear on your heart. You've all got Christian friends. Make sure that those friendships are places of reality and accountability and not just moaning. Especially we British Christians, we are the worst, some of the worst moaners in the world. Any Africans going to say amen to that? <laughs> Make sure your Christian friendships are places of reality and accountability, not just moaning. You know, we all receive dozens of hours of counsel every week, hundreds of hours a month of counsel, voices talking to us, wisdom coming in from everything we, we see and watch and TV and uh, media and, and people we spend time with all day. You know, we get dozens of hours a week, and we get one 35-minute sermon a week. This sermon cannot overturn all that counsel, I tell you. And if I try to do that, then I'm going to die. <laughs> We're all counselors, though, Christians. We all counsel each other by the way we speak, the way we live, the way we respond to each other, the things we say. We counsel each other all the time. If you have a friend, you are a leader. You have influence. How are you using it? Now, in the 18th century in this country and in North America, there was a great wind of God's Spirit that swept through towns and communities and whole nations, and it was called the Great Awakening. And thousands of people turned to Jesus Christ. It was an amazing time. And a Welshman called William Williams wrote a book in Welsh, which was called The Experience Meeting. The experience meeting, and the idea of his book was to encourage small groups of Christians to talk to one another about their experience of the Christian life and to help each other in it. Now, the book wasn't translated into English until uh, 
about 30 years ago. But here's what William Williams says. Make a group of about four to eight people and promise to meet each other and promise that you'll be honest and promise that whatever says in, is said in the group stays in the group, confidentiality. And promise that you will meet and that you will deliberately try and encourage each other. And he even suggests a whole load of questions that the group could ask each other. How real has God been to your heart this week? How clear and vivid is your sense of his love and forgiveness to you? To what degree is it real to you right now? Are you having any particular seasons of delight in God? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Sense him giving you his love, pouring it out in your heart? Have you been finding scripture to be alive, living and active? Instead of just being a book, do you feel like the Bible is coming after you? Are you finding certain promises in the Bible extremely precious and encouraging? Which ones? Tell me. Are you finding God is challenging you or calling you to something through his word? In what ways? Are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than in the past? Are you conscious of a growing sense of the evil in your heart and in response a growing dependence on and grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God? Now you put all of that together in a small group and they help each other to understand grace. You see, the battle for the heart is not one that you want to fight on your own. We are not lone rangers. And it is a battle. Being a Christian is not a passive engagement. Not if you want to grow. You have to fight for growth. And we have to fight for each other. And we have to do so together. Taking these great truths. Holding them out to each other. Helping each other, taking each other's hand, praying for each other, being brave enough to challenge when we see somebody trusting in a false saviour, but all the while loving them with all your heart because we belong to each other. We have peace with God, standing in grace, rejoicing in his glory, glorying in our sufferings. We shall be saved together. A friend of mine called Derek Baker who grew up in sunny Texas, uh, a very fit man, a marathon runner, but in his 30s, he found that he had a cancerous spot on his cheek. And I didn't know this. I hadn't seen him for about two or three years. He picked me up from the airport, and he had a big sort of circular scar on his cheek. I thought, that was strange. So he told me this. He had something called, where are the doctors in this place? A Mohs surgery? Mohs surgery. They gave him a local anesthetic, and they first of all cut around the cancerous spot uh, to take it out but they cut out a little bit bigger than what they could see with the naked eye. And then they cauterize the cut and slap a bandage over the spot. This is his language. Slap a bandage on. <laughs> While they look at the removed skin underneath the microscope. And then if they think there's more cancer at the edges of the skin, they go back, take it off, and cut some more around. And in between all these things, Derek was going off to a church meeting. <laughs> this bandage on his face. He went back four times. And every time they cut round a little bit more. And when all is said and done and the bad cells were removed, they stitched him up and he had 40 stitches in his right cheek. Now, they went back four times to get all the cancer out. Is that severe? Yes. But what would you rather have? A serious intervention or spreading cancer?
Now, our hearts, we've learned in, in the book of Romans, are cancerous with sin. It is a compulsion. It is a disordered uh, root of our being. It's a polluted fountain of hostility to God. It's a God complex. It puts ourself at the center of the universe and tries to make everything else revolve around us. And our hearts are cancerous by nature, but grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and God's word shines a light in and it illuminates our tumors and they start to shrink if we pursue Christ. But that will mean having relationships in our church, in our life groups, in our friendships with one another that are actually real and accountable and not just about moaning. We have to make those relationships loving and strong places of gospel intervention. And then we will really grow, friends. And when we really grow, just watch out. You don't know what might happen. So people of Grace Church, those of you who love our Lord Jesus, will you commit to doing this? Will you commit to doing that? Let's pray, shall we? Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Heavenly Father, you've given us life, and you've given it to us not through our own best efforts, but through faith. And therefore you call us righteous. We've been made right through your saving activity. Would you please forgive us that even those of us who've known you for a very long time, are so inclined to putting our trust in false saviors. Please have mercy on us again. And today renew us in our most holy faith. And help us, each one, as individuals and most of all as a community, to build each other up, to strengthen each other, and to press on into the newness of life that you've called us to. We ask in Jesus' name for his glory and for our good. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.